0: Donald Trump prepares to speak at a nationally televised press conference on the anniversary of the January 6th assault on Congress. Israel carries out a massive bombing of a Syrian port city. The next wave of COVID sweeps the United States and the world, and the United States and its domestic war lobby move aggressively toward war with Russia over Ukraine.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In The News, our Tuesday show on The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's January 4th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start?
1: Well. We have many, many topics, but first of all, a big shout out to the three of you and to our audience. A new year, 2022. We're looking forward to being able to bring a full range of programming. We hope to and continue to expand our programming, and we can do that with the support of people who support this show, people who go to patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program, and subscribe. That's how we can keep doing the show. We have a big week in front of us. As many people know, people who regularly listen to this show know, that on the Thursday segment, which comes out now Wednesday nights in Breakthrough News, we have been doing a, a multi-part series on the rise and fall of the Soviet Union and lessons for socialists. We've done three shows so far. But we're going to take a short break from that multi-part series and then resume it in mid-January because we're going to be joined this week in The Real Story by Professor author Gerald Horn to talk about the January 6th assault on the Capitol on the first anniversary. This Thursday will be January 6th, 2022. We're going to talk with Dr. Horn about January 6th and get his perspective We want to also talk about January 6th today, and we're going to do that today. Of course, as you said, Nicole, in the introduction, Donald Trump is preparing to also speak on January 6th. We have some preview about what he intends to say. But I want to start with news that has not been reported in the mainstream media at all or almost at all. On December 28th, the Israeli government carried out Another massive aerial attack against Syrian targets. And by Syrian targets, I'm talking about the people in the city of Latakia, the port city of Latakia, which was ablaze after being struck by Israeli warplanes on December 28th. I'm looking at The Guardian at around 3.21 a.m., the Israeli enemy carried out an aerial aggression with several missiles from the direction of the Mediterranean targeting the container yard in Latakia port the guardian reports from a syrian state news agency sana the strike caused significant material damage then the guardian writes asked about the strike an israeli army spokesperson said quote we don't comment on reports in foreign media. While Israel rarely comments on individual strikes it carries out on its northern neighbor, it has acknowledged mounting hundreds of air attacks against Syria since 2011. According to a report by the Israeli army, Israeli military hit at least 50 targets in Syria at different times in 2020. The deadliest attack occurred when Israel killed 57 Syrian government troops in January 2021. Now, can you imagine if Syria was routinely bombing Israel? Can you imagine if China was bombing its neighbor or Russia was actually engaged in bombing routinely the ports in Ukraine. Can you imagine the reaction? Can you imagine what the media coverage would be like? But here we have Israel, the largest recipient of U.S. military and economic aid of any country in the world, using U.S. military assistance to carry out another military strike against the port city of Latakia and almost no coverage or perhaps none whatsoever within the U.S. mainstream media. I just want to flag that because it's one of the reasons why having independent media like the socialist program inside the United States is so important, because if you rely only on the corporate-owned media to get your news and your perspective, you're not going to really know what's going on in the world. We also want to talk today about what's happening in Ukraine and at the border between Ukraine and Russia. Again, if you're getting your news from the U.S. media, and Esther, you were telling us earlier today about the way the news was covered on the Sunday talk shows, this inflamed war hawk language that the U.S. must be prepared for World War III with Russia over Ukraine, you will not understand anything. You will only understand that Russia is the aggressor, that Russia is threatening to invade Ukraine, that Russia has provoked a war in Ukraine. That will be pretty much the limit of your knowledge about what's going on in Ukraine. You won't know, for instance, that the United States and its European allies carried out a step-by-step coup d'etat against an elected government in Ukraine the government of Yanukovych on February 22nd, 2014, that insurrection, their assault on parliament was led by fascist mobs with guns. They dispersed the parliament. The president fled for his life. And they made it quite clear at that moment that their intention was to integrate Ukraine into NATO. And why is that a big deal? Because the Ukraine was the second largest Republic in the Soviet Union after Russia. It was Russia's principal military and trade partner. In fact, in Crimea, which was always Russian until it was administratively transferred in 1954 by Nikita Khrushchev to Ukraine, when Ukraine and Russia were one country, the Soviet Union, until then, Crimea was always Russian and had been the military location for the largest naval base of the Soviet Union and is today the largest naval base for Russia. Anyway, we're going to talk about Ukraine because things are heating up, because the U.S. is determined to integrate Ukraine into NATO and the Russians having experienced the use of Ukraine as the invasion point for Nazi Germany in World War II, an invasion that took the lives of 27 million Russian and other non-Russian Soviet peoples. The Russians aren't going to let that happen. We're going to talk about that. Of course, we have to talk about COVID, Omicron sweeping the country. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation, obviously, about it. The US government continues to fail One meme I saw issued by the Party for Socialism and Liberation that has gone "quote" viral. How many people died in the United States from COVID in 2021 in the capitalist United States of America? That would be 415 thousand. How many people in China, a government led by the Communist Party, how many people in China died in 2021? That would be two. Yes. 415,000 people in the United States died from COVID, and in China, two died. We'd like to talk about what's going on with environmental destruction. You had these massive wildfires in Colorado followed the next day by massive snowstorms. We're going to talk about so many issues today, but again, let's start with this anniversary week. One year ago, Donald Trump summoned his supporters, tens of thousands of them, to Washington, D.C. for a rally at the White House. He instructed them to march to the Capitol. He told them to fight. He told them that they could not save democracy and recover a stolen election unless they were prepared to fight. He said to them, Do not be weak. He said that Mike Pence would be a, a virtually a traitor unless he helped overturn the election outcome. And that crowd marched to the Capitol, stormed the Capitol with almost no police resistance, at least in many of the entrances, and dispersed the Congress, at least for several hours. We want to talk about it because a year later, Donald Trump, who you might have thought his goose was cooked after that. No, Donald Trump and his supporters and the right-wing movement that has consolidated in the United States, and it's a very far right-wing movement is in fact stronger and getting stronger. And I think we need to talk about January 6th in perspective. There's news, there's lots of news, there's a lot that's not being properly reported. And again, on Wednesday, Thursday, we're gonna be having Dr. Gerald Horn to share his perspective about January 6th and what it meant and what it will mean or what it might mean for US politics going forward. But Walter, one year ago, January 6th, A few days after that, the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent out a letter to 1.3 million members of the U.S. Armed Forces, quite an extraordinary letter signed by all eight generals in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They wrote The violent riot in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, was a direct assault on the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, and our constitutional process. We mourn the deaths of the two Capitol policemen more died later, and others connected to these unprecedented events. We witnessed actions inside the Capitol building that were inconsistent with the rule of law. The right of freedom of speech and assembly do not give anyone the right to resort to violence, sedition, and insurrection. As service members, we must embody the values and ideals of the nation. We support and defend the Constitution. Any act to disrupt constitutional process is not only against our traditions, values, I'm using air quotes around values, and oath, it is also against the law. Quite an extraordinary letter because obviously the Joint Chiefs of Staff were worried about the potentiality of a coup or the involvement of other military forces in an attempted overturn of the U.S. constitutional process. Anyway, Walter,
2: let's get started. That's right. I mean, the January 6th attack, now that we have the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, we can see and really appreciate how it changed U.S. politics in profound, long-reaching ways. At the time, it seemed like maybe this was it for Donald Trump. I mean, he was isolated. He was being condemned from within his own party to an extent that had not happened before. And he was legally vulnerable, right? I mean, Trump could have been arrested. None of those things came to pass. The Democrats instead decided to impeach Trump, which failed. Trump was actually acquitted. That was theater, by the way. That wasn't a criminal prosecution. That was a theatrical, a theatrical presentation that allowed actually Trump to get back on his feet. Exactly. Exactly. Because he could cast himself, as he always had, as the outsider, the victim of persecution by the establishment. And so Trump has retained his position as the most influential single person in the Republican Party. And the destabilizing effects of the January 6th, attack and its aftermath are felt both at the summits of of elite power in the United States and also all throughout society. I mean just to pick up on on what you were talking about Brian with the military which is of course of huge importance since you know military forces ultimately where political power comes from there was the op-ed published in the Washington Post by all living secretaries of defense on January 3rd. Then there was the sitting Joint Chiefs of Staff's message to all 1.3 million members of the U.S. military. And then that has continued. I, I want to read from another op-ed that was published in mid-December. It was written by three retired U.S. military generals, Paul Eden, Antonio Taguba, and Stephen Anderson. So they wrote, We are chilled to our bones at the thought of a coup succeeding next time. One of our military strength is that it draws from our diverse population. It's a collection of individuals, all with different beliefs and backgrounds. But without constant maintenance, the potential for a military breakdown mirroring societal or political breakdown is very real. The signs of potential turmoil in our armed forces are there. Now, that, that point they're making is true. The military is a reflection of the society from which it comes. And at the rank-and-file level and in the top brass, there are far-right fascistic elements present. There's also some progressive elements present and people who have decided that they want to turn against the U.S. war machine. But right now, it's these far-right fascistic elements that are ascended. And in this op-ed, these three retired generals give the example of Brigadier General Thomas Mancino, who is the commanding general of the Oklahoma National Guard, and refused an order from President Biden mandating that all National Guard members be vaccinated against COVID. Mancino said, you know, you're not my commanding officer. My commanding officer is the Republican governor of Oklahoma. So you could see how the chain of command is sort of beginning to break down here in profound ways. And all around the peaceful transfer of power, the peaceful transfer of power, the sort of cornerstone of the stability of capitalist rule in the United States. And then you have, I mean, here's another piece that's been making headlines. This is from Newsweek. Prepare for right-wing U.S. dictatorship before 2030. Scholar Urges Canada. This is from an op-ed in a Canadian newspaper, a major Canadian newspaper, by a political scientist who wrote, by 2025, American democracy could collapse, including extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. By 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. So the fact that these things are even being spoken about in mainstream media really gives you a sense of how destabilized this peaceful transfer of power has become. Now, that's peaceful transfer between one ruling class faction to another. But that's happened You know, with remarkable consistency throughout US history, France, for instance, has had five constitutions over the course of its existence. The United States still is on its one. Now, okay, so that's what's going on in the elite, in the summits of power. I just want to read a few findings from recent opinion polls that came out timed to coincide with the one year anniversary of the January 6th attack. So 33%. Of Americans think that Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election was not legitimate. 33%, one out of three people think that the sitting president of the United States is illegitimately in office. He has no legal authority to rule. That opinion poll also found that about a quarter of people thought that the people involved in the attack on the US Capitol, and that's the word that the opinion poll used, right? Attack on the US Capitol, were protecting democracy. 25% of the total population characterized that as an act to protect democracy. When you get into the sort of partisan breakdown of that, you could see the, the hardening of this fascist current in U.S. politics or fascistic current in U.S. politics, which has maybe around half of the Republican Party's support. So in an opinion poll published by CBS recently, 56% of Republicans described what happened on January 6th as defending freedom. 47% used the word patriotism to describe what happened on January 6th at the Capitol building. About 41% of Republicans think that it was actually left-wing groups that carried out the Capitol attack, right? This false flag mythology that was promoted by Donald Trump and sort of associated right-wing media outlets. 62% of people expect violence by the losing side the next time presidential elections are held, 62%. And only 38% think that the losing side will concede peacefully. I mean, the strong majority of the U.S. population expects violence to be the result of the next election. That is very, very rare in U.S. history. When asked if your side acted in a violent manner following the future election, right, if there was violence, on the part of your candidate in the aftermath of a future election, 30% of Republicans said it depends whether or not they would support it. Only 67% said no, definitely no violence after the next election. For about a third of Republicans, including 2% who say definitely yes, you know, violence, that's on the table. Maybe that's necessary. So on the Democrats, it's not insignificant. So 3% said yes they would favor violence if your side doesn't win the election. 15% say it depends. 82% would say no, under no circumstances would we favor violence. And then when you ask the question more broadly, 34% of Americans overall say violence against the government is sometimes justified. And that includes 40% of Republicans and 23 percent of Democrats. I mean, it's really remarkable when you put it all together how the political landscape has been transformed by the attack and the utter failure of authorities to exact serious consequences against the intellectual authors of this plot.
3: Yeah, and it's really important what you're saying, Walter, about the violence and these polls, because I think that the other result of January 6th is the introduction and acceptance of violence in politics. I mean, we know that this country has had many presidents assassinated. We know that there has been, you know, since Emancipation Proclamation, violence enacted against Black people for trying to vote and for trying to register to vote. We know that about that kind of political violence. And somehow we dissociate that from the kind of what we're calling the normal transfer or peaceful transfer of power. And since January 6th, the same violence, we've seen people at school boards attacked. We've seen election officials threatened and attacked, terrorized at their home. People have had to like leave their home. And so it introduced this violence as a means to get your way. In politics. And even though it wasn't a violent act, I was really struck by New Year's Christmas Eve when a man from Oregon, I mean, Biden and Joe Biden was sitting there doing a like a little Christmas Eve thing, talking to children about, you know, does Santa Claus come and everything? And so this man, I guess he's a father. He he ends the conversation with Biden saying, Let's go, Brandon, which is this right wing meme or a theme that basically means fuck Joe Biden. Right. (laughs) And he says this on the air to Biden. And this is to me, I just thought it was just the ultimate like demonstration of the disrespect of Biden. The fact that so many people like this man who could do this on a national call would have no, you know, reticence about, this slur to the president. And, you know, I'm not a Joe Biden fan, but I just thought that was horrible. And it was a kid's program. It was something for the children. And it just showed the amount of animus out there toward Biden, toward respecting his election, and how January 6th set this tone for disrespect of just what they call the, the norms, the institutions in Congress and of Biden.
1: I think that We need to put the recent destabilization of American capitalism into both a very briefly, a quick historical perspective from the last few years, and then just put it into a little bit longer perspective. When you think about what's happened since the 2016 election, you had Bernie Sanders running in a primary against Hillary Clinton, and many people learned because of revelations, largely from WikiLeaks. That the Democratic National Committee was doing everything it could, including violating its own rules, to make sure that Bernie Sanders would not become the nominee of the Democratic Party. That was their absolute objective. And the fact that they picked someone who would do worse against Donald Trump was secondary to them than preventing Bernie Sanders from ascending to the president. Then Hillary Clinton expects to be elected and loses to Donald Trump. And all of the Democrats for the next three years are told that the election is not really a legitimate election, that it was in essence a stolen election because Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin intervened in the electoral process. And that's why Donald Trump narrowly defeated in the electoral college, Hillary Clinton. So for three years, the Democrats themselves said, this is an illegitimate election and we should do everything to overturn it, including impeachment, whatever, whatever. There was constant talk about that. And on a false premise, not impeaching Trump for his racist anti-immigrant policies, not impeaching him for his attacks against Muslims, not for you know all of the other crimes that he committed against working class and poor people but because he was supposedly a tool of the Kremlin. So you had the Democratic Party base really believing that it was a stolen election and that this internet research agency in St. Petersburg, along with the KGB or whatever the Russian intelligence is called now, swung the election. That was untrue. That was a fantasy, but the Democrats believed it. Then 2020 happens and you know Biden narrowly defeats Trump now in both cases in 2016 and in 2020 the democratic candidate won by a large majority in the popular vote in 2016 Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by more than 3 million votes in the popular vote and Joe Biden beat Trump by more than 7 million votes in fact when you look at american politics over the last 30 years or so i mean A Republican has only won a popular vote once since 1988, and that was in the year 2004 when George W. Bush won a second term. Only once since 1988. But the Electoral College is the determiner of who is the president. And in both 2016 and 2020, the Democrats in 2016 and the Republicans in 2020 felt that it was an illegitimate election. So in a way... This really is the chickens coming home to roost where neither side accepts the election outcome.
3: Yeah, I I wanted to point out that these two elections and the conflicts in both of these elections, it kind of spills over into what's happening in terms of the investigations into January 6th and really how people are looking at January 6th. Because when you have someone like Adam Schiff, who was so instrumental in terms of the the impeachment trial of Trump and the fomenting of this whole Russiagate hoax, it really sullies the current investigation because people look at him as a purely political operative, who carried on this hoax for so long while Trump was president. And also when you have commentators like David Pluff, who just recently wrote a large piece in the Atlantic saying it was not a hoax talking about Russiagate. It really politicizes it in a way that just provides like raw meat for the right to say that, look, these people, they've just, you know, promoted this whole Russiagate thing. And now they're involved in this January 6th investigation. This is just purely political.
1: Right. That's such an important point, Esther, because why would anybody think that Adam Schiff isn't only a political operator? I mean, that man was getting about eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand dollars whenever he ran for election in a very safe seat every two years for Congress. But once he became like the chief, you know, Russia gate. Promoter inside of Congress and directed against the Trump administration, he was getting six, seven million dollars a year in donations. And it was completely a political operation. So the Democrats tried to discredit Trump, not for his reactionary politics, but on the false and wrong presentation that he was a stooge of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. And they were also trying to raise lots of money, which they did. And so even the progressive resistance that was in the streets and at the airports against Trump's reactionary policies after the election in 2016 and in the beginning of 2017, that was transformed into basically a reactionary resistance that demanded that the U.S. government take a harder line against Russia, that the U.S. government take a harder line against North Korea, that Trump was really selling out America to weak autocrats abroad. I mean, Actually, everything Donald Trump has said about the Democrats' attitude towards him, and by the Democrats, I mean the Democratic Party leadership, is not untrue. And that's why when he argues that this was just one more effort to take the presidency away from him, meaning what he calls the stolen election of 2020, his base believes it because they know it was true in 2016. And it wasn't just the Democratic Party the intelligence agencies, especially the FBI, organized this effort, this false fantasy against Trump as a stooge of the Kremlin. They organized what became the heart and soul then of the Mueller investigation. And Mueller himself was formerly the director of the FBI before James Comey. And it was clear that FBI operatives, including right-wing conservative and normally Republican operatives within the intelligence agencies didn't want Donald Trump to be president. And the reason they didn't want Donald Trump to be president, and as James Comey or Andrew McCabe or one of them, I think it was McCabe said, they started the investigation about Russia as an insurance policy in the unlikely event that Trump won, then they could sort of go at him and maybe impeach him or remove him from power on this basis. They didn't want him to be president because Trump doesn't really represent the bourgeoisie and the American government as a whole. He represents more or less himself. He was considered to be a narrow, self-seeking promoter of what was good for Trump rather than what was good for the ruling class. And as Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, the function of the chief executive in the modern state. Is to manage the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. The FBI, the intelligence agencies, I think the CIA were worried that Trump was only in this for himself, that he wasn't a team player, and that he was such a polarizing figure that his ascension to the White House would galvanize a mass progressive movement. So they didn't want him. And so all of the arguments by both sides ring true to their own base. And that's part of the reason that failing to really take Trump down to prosecute him for sedition and instead simply just have another political theatrical performance by the same Democrats who tried to impeach him on ridiculous ground the first time at the very end of his term in the White House, in fact, was like a lifeline to Trump and gave him a way to reorganize his base and said, look, don't think about January 6th. The real problem was the election in November. The real problem is the persecution and prosecution of these people who were involved in January 6th, which was really an effort to save democracy. Yes, maybe they overdid it, but what was their goal? Their goal was to stop a stolen election from being implemented and shoved down the throats of the American people. That's why this message is resonating. So in summary, the Democrats, the non right-wing party, but a bourgeois ruling class and pretty conservative party, I would say very conservative party, are actually indispensable to the rise of Donald Trump and indispensable to the consolidation of this new, very strong right-wing movement in America.
3: Right. And not only in America, actually, I was just thinking when you talked about Ukraine is the the failure of the Democrats and their base and their media associates to really tell the truth about Ukraine and how we are basically funneling money to an army that is heavily influenced by far right elements, people who actually are Nazis and salute a Nazi flag, just so we can say that we are doing this against Russia. And- That is just such a stain. I don't even know the right word for it, but it's just, it's ongoing right now. And it's a part of this current debacle in Ukraine. And we're funneling money to people who are Nazis. And, you know, Russia's not going to back down against that kind of politics on their border.
2: And I mean, here's one other way that I think the Democrats have been indispensable to the emergence and survival of this far-right current in U.S. politics, and that's their, their complete failure to implement any programs, any substantial programs that would really be of benefit to the lives of poor and working class people. It appeared that that might be happening, but Joe Manchin's announcement a couple weeks ago has made it exceedingly unlikely that the Democrats under the Biden administration, absent the intervention of a mass movement, will pass any major reforms that would expand social programs, that would expand people's access to health, education, housing, the necessities of life. I mean, there's a reason why this long-term destabilization of the U.S. political system has been happening. And there are a lot of different components to it and features of it. But if we wanted to just sum it up in one word, I, I think it would be inequality. It's that the extreme rich are getting even more extremely wealthy, vastly, vastly wealthy. I mean, unbelievable sums of money can be made and lost by the rich in you know a matter of days. Elon Musk made tens of billions of additional dollars in 2020, for instance, when the rest of the world was suffering. And at the same time, Workers have seen their wages stagnate, decline, living conditions decline, the price of housing go up dramatically, for instance, in many cities across the country. Healthcare is deteriorating. There's this unbelievable historic level of inequality. And so that opens the door for a Trump-type figure to come in with right-wing demagoguery and populism and say that, well, the reason why things aren't going so well is because immigrants from Latin America are coming here and causing all sorts of crime, or the real problem in society is that Black people are protesting against the police and racist police murder, or whatever, right? And they can develop this major following, this mass movement like following in the absence of an effective opposition that actually speaks to the needs of working people to have the basic necessities of life met, to have basic human dignity respected with regards to racism, anti LGBTQ bigotry, the rights of women. In the absence of a counterweight like that, the right wing is able to establish themselves as the main oppositional force, the main anti establishment force. And it's the complete incompetence weakness of the Democratic Party that helps them to do that and shows why we can't rely on the Democratic Party and in fact need to bypass and and eventually bury the Democratic Party if we're going to stop this right wing drift from going all the way to a dictatorship.
0: Yeah, we're, you know, we're talking about What group of people and possibly a lot of people in the United States might be willing to take up arms or really have a full insurrection here in the United States? And I wanted to add a little bit more specific detail into that conversation, because I think the mainstream media, you know, and I think in the general sort of liberal cultural zeitgeist, often it's the specter of the white working class that is possibly the group of people who might want to do that or who is all, you know, all Trump supporters are white working class it's really not the case that that's, you know, this certain phenomenon. I was diving into some data from the poll that you talked about, where one of the questions is, do you think it's ever justified for citizens to take violent action against the government? Or is it never justified? And like you said, 34% of all adults said, yes, it's justified. You know, when you dive into that a little bit, you see, yeah, it's 40% of Republicans say it's justified. 44% of people leaning Republicans say it's justified. So, you know, we know that more of the people who are answering this and probably more of the country in general who are Republicans, I think this is a phenomenon that's occurring more so on the right. But the really interesting thing here is when you look at all of these people divided up by education, this poll does not break it down by income or by wealth, but it breaks it down by education. And that's where you see the split. It's really of the people polled who are college graduates said, yes, it's justified for citizens to take violent action against the government. And it gets even higher when you look at white male college graduates. 59% of white male college graduates who are polled in this poll say that it is justified for citizens to take action and violent action against the government. So that's 59% compared to the overall poll of 34%. That's the population according to this poll, which talk to a lot of people around the country. It's really not the working class. This is these are middle class people who have gone to college and who are leaving college and who are a part of things like the January 6th insurrection or a part of the QAnon conspiracy theories online or who are a part of, you know, a lot of these really violent right wing militias and movements.
1: Well, you know, it's important to actually do investigation and to derive a political perspective from facts when you look at low income voters, meaning households making less than $50,000 in 2019, 55% voted for Biden and 43% voted for Trump. So 55 to 43%. So in the low income voters, it's clear that the poorer sections of the working class voted Democrat, meaning against Trump. The divide is largely an urban rural divide in terms of where the right wing is strongest. I mean, it's not exclusively urban rural, but it's certainly the dominant part of the division. And one of the things that I think is so important to remember is that 83% of the people in this country live in cities. They live in urban areas. They're not adequately and proportionally represented in state legislatures, They're not represented in the U.S. Congress. They're certainly not represented adequately in the Electoral College. If they were, the specter of the rising right would be put into its proper perspective. And, you know, it's one thing when the cities are asleep, when the urban areas are quiet and the right wing is mobilizing in the rural areas especially or building a political base, it seems like they're the ascendant dominant power. But when 83% of the population lives in cities, when you have a growing part of the population that's not white, that's tens of millions or more than 100 million people who are black and Latino, parts of the population that will reject fascism, along with tens of millions of white people who will reject right-wing fascist movements, this part of the population is quiet for the moment. But at the moment that this part of the population is not quiet, when it's mobilized, when it's moving, when it's either mobilized or spontaneously moving, then you see where the real power in America lies. So it would be really foolhardy, I think, for people to look at the Democrats' weakness in the face of the Republican right-wing and fascist upsurge and say, oh, no, all is lost, when the fact of the matter is our side is stronger. Our side is far stronger. And if the ruling class or some parts of the ruling class think that they can impose fascism in the United States and they think they can avoid the resistance of the cities, I think they are involved in a fantasy. And so our goal for the left should be to understand the trends, to see why fascism and ultra-right politics are consolidating as a movement, but not in order to be filled with fear and trepidation like liberals are, but to organize a fight back, to organize a militant mass resistance, to remember that in the summer of 2020, when 35 million people were in the streets and active, when the cities big and small, were filling up with mass protests, there's the power of the people. And of course, this is something for the left. Don't look to the Democrats. Don't think that the Democrats are going to be a solution. Don't think, oh, we have to have the lesser evil. The lesser evil is contributing to the power of the greater evil. And in that sense, the lesser evil, while perhaps lesser in some areas, is part of the overall evil of a decaying capitalist system And we need to break free from it. And we can break free from it. I mean, that's going to be the political message of the socialist program and from the authentic left in the United States. Let's go on, though, to another topic. Esther, we've been covering voter suppression, the efforts by the regressive, racist retrograde forces to promote gerrymandering in a way that disenfranchises black people. This is happening, especially in more remote areas or in state legislatures that are under the control of the Republicans. Anyway, it's a brazen effort to sort of change or turn back history. Again, I'm of the conviction that history and the verdict of history and the ascension of the civil rights movement can never really be truly turned back the way the racists want it to be because people aren't going to go back. But anyway, let's talk about this issue.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, Voter suppression actions by Republicans since January 6th, and I think these actions are taking advantage of that rural-urban divide you just mentioned, they really highlight what the right-wing believe fraud is, you know, what illegal votes are. They're trying desperately to keep Black, Brown, Indigenous, and young people from voting, you know, to keep our votes from counting. And they only want the Trump base to vote and for the far right to vote. And as you mentioned, they're not going to be successful in this. As a matter of fact, I just heard a recent story. I was listening and they were talking about how in Texas, for example, 1.5 million people have registered to vote since they started all the voter suppression tactics there. But the latest in the voter suppression news is that on Thursday, the American Civil Liberties Union, along with a number of individuals and groups like the sixth district of the African Methodist Episcopal church have filed a lawsuit against Georgia's secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. And that's to keep a series of newly drawn election district maps from being implemented because these new maps violate, they say the 1965 voting rights act. So, In announcing the lawsuit, Sophia Lynn Lakin, she's the ACLU's voting rights project director, said, quote, these newly drawn maps are a brazen attempt by Georgia politicians to undermine the political power of black voters. State legislatures are responsible for laws and policies that profoundly impact our daily lives. There's no legitimate justification for drawing maps that deny black voters an opportunity to elect representatives who will fight for them in these critical state house deliberations. And she says, politicians don't get to choose their voters. Voters get to choose their politicians. And I think, remember in the last, in the news show, we discussed how population growth in Texas, for example, was in the black and mainly brown populations, but the newly drawn districts there do not include one new black and brown majority district. So the same in Florida, and this is what the lawsuit says, quote, Georgia is one of the fastest growing states in the nation, and that growth has been driven entirely by black Georgians and other Georgians of color. Over the last decade, Georgia's black population grew by 16%, while the population of white Georgians fell during the same period. Black Georgians today comprise a third of Georgia residents and people of color now make up nearly half of the state's population the growth of the state's Black and other minority communities is driving Georgia's continued economic growth and its increasing prominence on the national stage. Yet the new legislative maps for Georgia's General Assembly, which were rushed through the legislative process in a week and a half, do not account for the growth of Georgia's Black population. Rather, the new maps systematically minimize the political power of Black Georgians in violation of federal law, end quote. Then the suit adds that, quote, these maps unnecessarily pack black Georgians together in some places, dissecting areas with large, cohesive black populations in others, and ultimately diminishing black Georgians true voting strength statewide and in specific districts. And then it says, especially in light of Georgia's legacy of racial discrimination against and subordination of its black population and the the ongoing accumulated effects of that legacy, the state's maps will prevent black Georgians from exercising political power on an equal playing field with white Georgians. So I think this is just an example, a really deep dive into what is happening in one state in particular, and this lawsuit and the tactic here to fight back through the legal system against these voter suppression methods.
1: Yeah, Esther, we're going to keep following that story again. As we have said over and over again, it's not that we believe that elections are the road to the revolutionary transformation of America, the needed socialist reconstruction of the United States, but that's not really the issue here. The issue here is that a growing part of the population is not white. A growing part of the population is black and Latino and Asian American and Arab American, And there is an effort by racist right-wing forces to do as they have done since the beginning of the founding of this republic, which is to deprive black people and Latino people and other people who are not well-to-do white people from the right to vote. And there's all kinds of obstacles that are thrown in the way. The Poor People's Campaign makes an argument that the suppression of the black vote and the suppression of the Latino vote is also the suppression of just The vote of poor people, because poor people are going to vote in larger numbers against the Republican Party's policies of austerity and the redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the top. That's what's going on here. Anyway, let's go on to another story. Again, that's about racism, which is you can't really talk about politics in America, any kind of politics, without putting racism at the very center And of course, you can't talk about policing in America without also talking about racism at the very core of it.
3: Right. So I've also been thinking about the ways that January 6th is justified by the far right as a response to what they keep mischaracterizing as riots during the 2020 uprising against racism, which we know was overwhelmingly peaceful And with the violence really coming from the police and these images of violence with the tear gas and firing rubber bullets and injuring people and knocking down elderly protesters. just the kind of chaos that ensued when the police arrived, not to keep peace or not to, you know, let people observe their First Amendment rights, but to come out to attack the people who they perceived as attacking their right to do violence. Two years later, there has been no effective federal response to these ongoing police murders and abuse, just like there's no federal response right now to this voting rights crisis. I mean, they still haven't passed any effective federal voting rights protections, even though people have been marching and protesting all year, getting arrested here in DC for it. So not only has there been no legislative response, police continue to obstruct or ignore what legal oversight over there acts of terror that's been created. So a recent Washington Post story revealed that the FBI may actually shut down its database tracking use of force by police due to a lack of police participation. So that what's happening is that police departments are not required to meet a federal mandate. And so therefore, facts about this police terror across the United States, you know, which we regularly report on here, do not get compiled. And So it's odd to me that the program may be shut down completely as opposed to compelling the police to like give this information that they've been instructed to give anyway. So the story says, quote, the program was required to obtain data representing 60% of law enforcement officers to meet a standard of quality set by the office of management and budget, or else stop the effort by the end of 2022 we have to ask ourselves, why was it created that way? It gave the police an out to like destroy the program. So, anyway, in 2019, the data covered 44% of local, state, federal, and tribal officers. And last year, the total increased to 55%, according to the program's website. So far this year, the data represents 57% of all officers. And that's according to what the FBI reported. So. This program is not even getting the full participation of federal policing agencies. The article says, quote, as of September 30th, 81% of federal officers who were represented in the data, even though only 43 of 114 federal agencies or about 38% had participated by then according to the FBI's website. Two of the largest federal agencies, the Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement have been sending in data this year, but the Justice Department's largest agency, the Bureau of Prisons, had not. So this article is covering a new report from the Government Accountability Office. And the report also says, again, reading from the article, the Justice Department has largely ignored a requirement included in the 1994 crime bill to acquire data about the use of excessive force by law enforcement officers and shall publish an annual summary of the data acquired. No such summary has been published in at least the past five years the GAO found. The Justice Department officials suggested to the GAO that the National Use of Force program could provide that data, but the program does not differentiate between incidents involving reasonable force and those involving excessive force. And I just wanted to add here that, you know, as a journalist, I see the roots of this effort just to collect facts being born during the early years of the movement for black lives. And that's when we were reporting on the murder of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. And we realized that there were no facts being gathered in this country about how many people are assaulted or killed by police and The Guardian, a newspaper in another country, started keeping the best record of people killed by the police in the United States. And now, slowly, news organizations have been shamed into, at least, I think, giving it some coverage. But still, there's this pushback and this problem collecting nationally, on a federal level, these kinds of statistics. It's really disgraceful.
1: It's amazing, actually. I mean, the U.S. keeps statistics on everything, But here you have a demand from the population, how many of us are being killed every day and every year by police departments? And gee whiz, the federal government just doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the competence, doesn't have the authority to actually count the numbers. Obviously, if there was a will, there are many ways that this could happen. But in fact, there is no will because it's in the interest of the ruling class as a whole to conceal the level of police violence against the population and especially against parts of the population, because the whole role of the police is not to fight crime, but to keep social control over big parts of the working class. That's the real function of the police. And of course, to the extent that the mass movement is demanding answers, The government has to, at least in the beginning when the heat is at its hottest, pretend that they're going to give some answers. But now that there's been some diminution of the heat, you can see that there is no real will to make this happen. Let's go on, Esther. A couple other quick stories. I want to get to COVID soon because, and Nicole has done some important research, but there's two other really important stories, not shocking in a way, but really important to at least mention. One, of course, is the Trump appointed judge who, of course, stood with the police as they brutally attacked the water protectors at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests.
3: Absolutely. So there's not really much to say more about it than that. But these protesters had brought a lawsuit against police in North Dakota who sprayed demonstrators with water cannons in sub-freezing temperatures. They used tear gas and fired rubber bullets and exploding munitions indiscriminately at these protesters. Many people were injured. And so this Trump judge just dismissed their lawsuit. We also want to talk about here in D.C., the dcist website in collaboration with reveal from the center for investigative reporting reported in december that the disciplinary review division of dc's metropolitan police department sought to terminate at least 24 officers currently on the force for criminal misconduct from 2009 to 2019 but in all but three of those cases another panel of higher-ups headed by the current police chief Robert Conti blocked the termination. And these officers were being disciplined for domestic violence, DUIs, indecent exposure, sexual solicitation, stalking, and more. In several instances, they fled the scene of their crimes. And these kinds of files are rarely made public after DC was the subject of a ransomware attack. And the reporters involved in the stories weren't part of the hack. But not only are these records rarely made public, but these are crimes. And it means that. Not only are the cops keeping their jobs, but they're never charged with a crime and they don't get arrested for them. So the disciplinary files, like I said, they provide a rare glimpse into how these officers, you know, avoid accountability. They remain on the force. And even after the department's own internal affairs investigators have determined that they committed crimes.
1: Real, I mean, terrible crimes. I mean, when you read the story, It's just shocking. Like this cop gets out and demands that a prostitute perform a sex act with him for a certain amount of money. And she says no. And then he pulls a gun and puts it in her face.
3: Right. Another cop repeatedly assaulted his wife, beat her violently. He's still on the force.
1: Yeah. As long as you're a police officer, you not only have a, a license to be judge, jury, and executioner, you have the right to commit crimes any time of the day, even when you're not on duty, and the police will shield you. Again, you know, this impunity exists for a reason. The police have the privilege of impunity so that when they carry out massive acts of violence against the working class or against progressive forces, they know the system has got their back. And that's really the social contract between the bourgeoisie and police forces, Let's talk about the judiciary.
3: Well, yeah. Chief Justice Roberts found it necessary to respond to a recent Wall Street Journal article that found that 131 federal judges had violated a federal law by hearing 685 lawsuits between 2010 and 2018 that involve companies in which they or their families own shares of stock. So he's basically saying in a a recent piece that, oh, you know, the judicial part of government can handle its own business, that we don't need any additional oversight. And obviously, from what this article is saying, that's not true. And so Roberts is basically trying to hold them up above the rest of us as citizens, just like cops, that they don't have to obey the law and they, they won't be charged for a crime when they've committed a crime.
1: Right. And the complete fraud of judicial independence needs to be revealed. All of these judges, they all say now, oh, you know what? I should have recused myself. You know, I was overseeing lawsuits that involved, you know, large amounts of money, corporations that I or my wife or my husband had, you know, huge stock shares in. I should have recused myself, but it's against the law. It's against the rules. But they're not losing their seat. They're just like sort of, whimsically saying, sorry. (laughs) Anyway, it's a complete fraud. The idea that the Supreme Court or any of the justices are sort of impartial referees, just looking at the pitch and making sure it's either a ball or a strike with an objective eye. None of that is true. Nicole, COVID, Omicron, sweeping the country, sweeping the world. A month ago, people were actually starting to think, hey, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Not so much right now.
0: Brian, in total, there have been 55 million cases of COVID in the United States throughout the pandemic, more than 826,000 deaths in this country. As you, I think, very importantly mentioned earlier, in this year, in 2021, or last year, I should say, 415,000 people died due to covid in the united states only two in the year 2021 died due to COVID. in china just a huge stark comparison that this country is still not handling the pandemic despite all the resources despite all the time and you know one i think rumor that a lot of us have been clinging on to is that omicron is less severe or less serious and while we still don't really know you know as much information as we would like We are seeing hospitalization rates starting to surge. They're up 31 percent from last week all over the country. And unfortunately, deaths are also up 37 percent around the country. So, you know, we're seeing this huge, just incredibly huge skyrocketing case rate. But unfortunately, hospitalizations and deaths are following as well. And now about 1,500 of us are dying of COVID every single day in this country right now. Several of us, Esther Brian, you two and I all live in Washington DC where the case rate is higher than it's ever been where the hospitalization rate is higher than it's ever been in the entire pandemic since you know March 2020 and we're in 2022 now. you know there's a lot of articles out I think because this is still ongoing and because we're still dealing with this, a lot of people are writing about this and talking about this. I don't want to say too much here, but one thing I did want to read from a Washington Post article that really struck me, I'm just going to read straight from the article, quote, while the pandemic's first two years raised awareness of public health's antiquated infrastructure, those systems still had not been adequately revamped in time for Omicron, according to Sarah Cody, the Santa Clara County, California health officer who described developing homegrown databases to track COVID cases. And this is a quote from Sarah Cody. We are the health department in Silicon Valley, and we still get information about hospitalized cases faxed to us, she said. Just such a stark indication of where the money in this country goes. It goes to Silicon Valley. It goes to apps. It goes to technology to make more people rich and to make rich people richer. It doesn't go to the public health system that is, in fact, antiquated. And then, you know, another piece from that article, a primary healthcare physician who works with low-income populations, the physician's name is Shantanu Nundi, quote, has been listening with concern to praise being heaped on the potential benefits of antiviral pills. He anticipates the next problem will be getting pills into mouths. Nandi saw something similar play out with self-administered tests, which he began advocating in March 2020, only to see tests remain difficult to access and often expensive. He goes on, similarly, the new antiviral medication should be taken within three to five days of onset of symptoms, and it requires a prescription, an almost insurmountable barrier for the 25% of the US population who don't have a primary care physician and others who would have trouble making a prompt appointment, particularly given the wait time for many test results. Nundi says, quote, there is an implicit assumption that biomedical innovation will infuse its way into where it's needed. And we absolutely know that is not true, unquote. But I think the most exciting story that this is huge news, this is really, really good news. There's another story in the Washington Post and that has made its rounds around the news, is there's a new coronavirus vaccine that was approved one week ago today in India. India approved it on an emergency basis. And it's a vaccine developed by the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. And they've provided the vaccine technology, the licensing for it, and training in how to manufacture it. The developers themselves, Peter Hotez and Maria Elena Bottazzi, they created the vaccine and they are making zero money on it. Their employer, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, is getting a fee. But the researchers themselves are providing this vaccine patent free and are working also with the World Health Organization with the aim to distribute this free vaccine globally. They have provided this vaccine and they're in talks with different countries and different companies to manufacture versions of the vaccine in Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Botswana. And like I said, they're working with the World Health Organization to possibly get it developed globally. Now, you know, I think it's so important to talk about how this got developed with, and I'll quote from the article, quote, minimal help from the U.S. government, unquote. While U.S. Operation Warp Speed invested $4.1 billion into Moderna alone. And we know they invested into other private corporations as well that developed these other other vaccines who have been making profit hand over fist. But these researchers in Texas have developed this vaccine with minimal help from the U.S. government and are, are providing it worldwide. This could be a huge game changer. I wanted to read a quote from Hotez. This is Peter Hotez, who is the director for the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. And he said, a simple back-of-the-envelope calculation showed the need for more inexpensive vaccine doses. He said, in terms of unvaccinated people, quote, you've got a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, almost a billion in Latin America and the Caribbean, another billion in the smaller, low-income countries of Southeast Asia. That's 3 billion people. You're going to need 6 to 9 billion doses of vaccine. So, you know, when the president stands up a couple weeks ago and says, well, the U.S. government is the largest donor of vaccines. We've given away two hundred and seventy five million doses. Hotez says, I'm looking at that and saying that's not something to boast about, unquote. And, you know, this is so important because this is our vision of socialism. This is where it needs to go. The end of intellectual property rights, making that property become non-property. Private property at its basic level is really the right to exclude. I mean, You know, Hotez was educated by people around the country, was, you know, developed this with a team, talked with colleagues. You know, this wasn't developed in a vacuum. This isn't private property. And the fact that Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and these corporations have decided to not only make these vaccines, but use public money to do it. And then are, like I said, making profit hand over fist is not only disgusting, but it's also deadly. You know, so this is really the vision, ending these intellectual property rights and making this property ours. And even more, it gets me thinking about, I mean, why don't we nationalize Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson and the other capitalist elites who own, you know, and profit off of publicly funded and developed scientific vaccines? It's, you know, it's really the the common sense thing to do.
1: You know, there's that famous meme. Well, it was before the Internet, so it wasn't a meme then, but it was a graphic and, was in a way a cliche for the progressive working class movement, which was either Marxist or anarchist or combination of the two. The slogan was property is theft. And what that means is private property, not your personal property, but private property, meaning like these vaccines that have been developed. These are the byproduct of social labor. You know, even those scientists In order to get to work at the university, they had to go in some sort of vehicle, maybe a subway car, maybe a car. They had to go on a road that was paved. Everything that we do, everything that we take for granted, everything that we integrate in our life for what we consider at some point to be our individual contributions is only part of a social picture of labor, social labor. And so if you, as you said, exclude others from access to one part or the final part of the productive process and say, this property belongs to me, that is a way of stealing. It's a form of theft. Property is theft. Anyway, let's go on to another story. Walter, this is both a heartbreaking story, a revealing story, and a bizarre and ludicrous story. It's about how the Pentagon is handling The Pentagon brass is handling the avalanche of suicides among U.S. military personnel.
2: Right. And their answer is let's do plays over Zoom. Let's do theater over Zoom. This is an article that appeared in the Washington Post two days ago. It's titled Military Suicides Are Increasing. Theater of War is offering more than just a show of sympathy. Theater of War is the name of this theater troupe that organizes plays that have now linked up with the U.S. military. And essentially, it's they put on plays about war and military themes and the depression that people suffer after war and psychological problems that people suffer after war for a military audience. So this is presented as sort of a form of therapy. But what this article never touches on Which is, of course, the most important thing, is why people are killing themselves in huge numbers. Why are veterans committing suicide in such enormous numbers? And why were they being sent to fight in those wars in the first place? I mean, war is horrifying, of course. I mean, it's like a cliche, right? War is hell. But you can't separate the war from the cause of the war, the fighting in the war from the cause of the war. And the fact is that the U.S. government has sent hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops into wars of aggression, of course, over the course of its entire existence, but especially during the, you know, quote-unquote war on terror era when the U.S. invaded and occupied Afghanistan, invaded and occupied Iraq. And now soldiers, you know, trying to come to grips with what happened to them and what they did, you know, there's a huge psychological problems that people deal with, huge psychological wounds that are inflicted on people in the course of these wars that did not have to happen. There is no reason for the U.S. to invade and occupy Afghanistan. There is no reason for the U.S. to invade and occupy Iraq. And so when people try to, you know, provide therapy through theater, which, you know, in and of itself is not a bad idea, it can't be divorced from this broader context. And that's, of course, what the Washington Post and other corporate media outlets like it does the best. 2.5 million people served as
1: members of the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, and related reserve and National Guard units in their deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. 2.5 million. Many of them went to Iraq or Afghanistan twice, many three times, four times, some five times. One solution to people having post-traumatic stress and the associated psychological and emotional issues that come with endless war is to not have the wars. But instead, the Pentagon says, let's study Greek tragedy to help people cope. Here's the first sentence of that article. Introducing a Greek tragedy about a soldier who dies by his own hand is not what you think of as normal duty for one of the military's top brass, but that was the mission of Navy Rear Admiral Frank M. Bradley, commander of the U.S. Armed Forces Special Operations Command Central in Tampa, who recently spoke to a gathering of servicemen and women watching the session online from around the world. Quote, There's not one of us that hasn't been touched by suicide somewhere in our lives through our extended families and friends. And as everybody knows, it is a plague that knows no bounds of time or segments of society. So, you know, that's true. Like every service member and their family knows about this. The number of people who have died from suicide is four times greater Than the number of people who died in the Iraq and Afghanistan war. I mean, when I'm talking about people, I'm talking about on the US side, the US troops. Again, this is the byproduct of a criminal system of endless war. The military doesn't care about veterans at all, but the military is embarrassed right now because the casualty rate is four times that of what actually is the casualty rate in battle or on battlefields. I want to go on to another story. I know we're coming to the close now, but Esther, those wildfires in Colorado that are only a thing in Colorado in the recent years, maybe in the last 10 or 12 or 13 years, they were so violent, so much destruction, and immediately followed by very large, heavy snowstorms.
3: Right. I mean, we keep seeing these horrific, you know, climate catastrophe-fueled, disasters happen. And the only thing you can think when you see the images is like apocalyptic. And I know I had to like look at the television twice because what it looked like there was a mountain on fire. You know, I was trying to understand what I was seeing. And as it turns out, they think that more than a thousand homes and businesses have burned in the Boulder area. And unfortunately, you know, two people are still missing. They think that these people were killed in the fire, but this amount of massive damage and so many people fleeing for their lives, losing everything that they have. I mean, it's almost becoming, you know, I don't want to say normal, but it's becoming increasingly common. I remember uh, about a year ago, we were talking about Texas and the big freeze there. And we learned so much about how that state's infrastructure is not designed to keep people safe and keep people warm in the winter, not really designed to deliver energy at a, an affordable price. Similarly, they're talking about you know, perhaps this Colorado fire was started by downed wires. And These down wires may have ignited, you know, with dry brush and started this chain of fires, you know, exploding transformers. And we get back to infrastructure again, and we get back to how here in the Congress can't even pass a bill or a law to deal with the climate catastrophe or to deal with these larger issues around infrastructure and not just the corporate giveaway that they did pass, but you know, just the things that communities need to fight back against this catastrophe created by fossil fuel companies. And they never have to, you know, respond after these emergencies. It's always the people, and it's always in some way our tax dollars, you know, kind of subsidizing the end of this run that the fossil fuel companies have had to ruin and wreck the environment.
1: Yeah, really amazing. Like when we normalize Ongoing climate catastrophe. And the ruling class fiddles while everything burns, or then burns and is overwhelmed by snowstorms the next day, the very next day.
3: Or they don't fiddle, they go off in a rocket. They go have space tourism.
1: Yeah, they will save themselves. Their plan is to have their progeny end up on Mars while the rest of the people burn and die. Walter, final story What's new in Liberation News?
2: Yeah, a couple articles that I really want to highlight this week. One is titled Mexican Women's Solidarity Defies Texas Abortion Law. A writer for Liberation spoke with an activist from the Mexican women's network, Las Libres, who are helping women from Texas and other parts of the U.S., get abortion or preparing to do so in the event that Roe v. Wade is overturned, a really remarkable example of international solidarity. Another article is titled Biden's New COVID Rules Protect Profits Endanger Workers. This is the view from the labor movement about how so many workers are fed up, disgusted that the government is failing to take adequate measures to protect their health and well-being. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled Catastrophic Wildfire Rips Through Boulder, Colorado Suburbs. Just like we were talking about, these fires were catastrophic, exacerbated by climate change. You can get more details here. And be sure to check out liberationnews.org every day for updates. All
1: right, we're going to leave it right there. As I mentioned, uh, we're going to be joined in an interview later in the week in our segment called The Real Story by Professor Gerald Horn. We're going to talk in depth about January 6th, the rise of the white supremacist movement, the rise of fascism and what people can do about it, most importantly. Again, that's going to be aired on Wednesday night on Breakthrough News. It'll be a podcast on Thursday morning on all podcast streaming services. Tomorrow, we will again be joined by Professor Richard Wolf in our regular segment about the biggest stories in the economy.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it.
3: Thank